show that I'm, I've been needing to write for a while, and that was a uh, a, a phonetic string matcher. Phonetic string matcher. Did you mm-hmm. use the uh, uh, what's it the uh, the distance algorithm? Like the Liechtenstein? That's not that's the country. Uh, the uh, the what's the distance algorithm? No, not even not even close. Okay. All I did was it's a very simple. Uh, I think it's called a metaphone. Levinson, Levinson, distance out. Am I making this up? I don't know. The, the The metaphone is based on the Soundex algorithm, so this is one step oh, further. Soundex, and, are you using Soundex? Yeah. Okay. But metaphone tries to be a little bit more accurate. Some modifications of it, and then there's also something called a double metaphone, which I didn't get into because I just like I don't have the resources to do this. And by resources, I mean Salesforce doesn't have the resources to do this. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I've been meaning to because I get asked all the time to do fuzzy matching and all this you kind of stuff. You can't do this with Salesforce. <clears throat> and for a long time, I've been meaning to build something that I can kind of, you know, leverage in the future. You know, add it to my kind of my uh, tool belt. You my, know, le- leverage your synergies <clears throat> for collective success. Le- uh, leverage my synergies for fusion for ultimate fusion. Okay. <laughs> so, no, so what I, did you? What is this that you built with this? All it does is it breaks down, it, it, and this is geared towards English, it's not going to work with other languages, but basically it, it breaks down the phonetics of, of a word. So say taxes and T-A-X and taxes and T-A-C-K-S, that cuss sound, yeah. it normalizes the, that, that word and pulls out all the vowels and everything and basically truncates it down to, say, four characters um, that somehow phonetically match. And so that's what I'm using to kind of gauge, you know, whittle down my result set into that. So. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm saying so a lot. What, what is the application? That's what I'm. Well, in this missing. particular case, I needed to take a a list of. I, I have to query for a list of contexts, and I have to somehow whittle it down and figure out what is a potential match. And it has to be this fuzzy matching. I have to build a kind of fuzzy match. Uh, I don't know Tom or Thomas or Tom's or you know some misspellings in the name or something. And so I've been meaning to, and I thought about some kind of distance algorithm and getting into that, but I was like, man, that's just it, it's tough because when you get into the Salesforce world, you build the algorithm. And then you find out, well, crap, it's slow as crap. And when I try to throw, you know, to 100, my first attempt at the metaphone, I threw like 50 records at it in, within my logic. Like it had, to, it had to go out and pull some records from the system and then go through and try to match all those. Uh, and it crapped out at 50. And so I, I just spent, I just kind of re- iteratively refactored all of it until I got something more efficient, which, which did, was a combination of taking my results set, categorizing them, you know, by, you know, first letter or something like that. So I'm now dealing with a smaller subset and then making sure my algorithm wasn't trying to crawl every character. It would actually jump to the next character that it needs to, to watch for instead of crawling through each character. So that gave me some performance boost and all that kind of stuff. So it was just a matter of tweaking. I finally got it there, but it was, it was kind of odd that I had such a simple algorithm and it, it just, I, I could only process so many records on Salesforce. Well, as a product manager once told me, hey man, this is a database triggering language. Why, do, why are you trying to even do that? Uh, but it it ended up working out pretty well Uh, I was pretty happy with the results Uh, I mean I'm not happy with the performance of it but I'm happy that it at least does what I needed to do enough that I can get a a smaller result set that I can deal with because that, that's the ultimate. Because when you're trying to batch something, was it, was it's it your matching, you, your dupe matching, or whatever, or uh, duplicate it's, it's detection? It's kind of dupe match. It, it is being used for dupe matching, but I actually use it for other things as well, just to see if something already exists. Well, I guess that's considered dupe matching. Um, but th- there's other other places I can use it that's kind of in the, along those lines. Okay. Uh, but anyways, this was part of a dupe matching, and because when you batch everything, it's not like another system where you can just say. 
here's my name, go and query it, and then I'm going to deal with that small set that comes back. No, I have to bulkify everything, which means I have to collect a list of all the contacts I'm ever going to have to search for, and now I have like this bucket of 2,000 records instead of you know maybe one or two that I have to deal with. And that, that really adds a whole other dimension, to, especially if you're, if you're doing something that's like algorithmic in right. nature. It's like it, making it operate on, on lists or sets of these things or whatever, co- collections of them. Yeah. It adds a whole other dimension that can make it you know, another another kind of exponent order of of, of uh, complexity. Yeah, and on top of it, in this particular use case, they the client wanted to encrypt everything, and when you encrypt fields, uh, say like name fields or, well, let's just use name fields because that's what I was trying to match on. Mm-hmm. You can you can no longer use use them in select statements. Once they're encrypted, you can't do a select where name equals this or name is like this. Now you can use Sossel, so I basically collect a list of string or collect a list of names, pass that to Sossel, and say, "And I go find a bunch of these, and then I have to whittle that result set down." Mm-hmm. And even that's a little imperfect because you, there's only so many records you can bring back, right? So it, you know you're just kind of at the mercy of that of that search algorithm to to bring back something relevant across your entire batch. I mean, these... I could have names that are John Doe or you know Zena, <laughs> yeah. and there are two opposite ends, and I got to hope that the data I need. All fits within the limits of what it can, what it Sossel can return. How do these third-party like dupe blocking and and other other types of tools that you would think need like high-performance access to all of your data in order to actually work? How, how do they do that? Do they keep an? Surely they don't keep an offline database of your. No, a lot of them. What they'll do is uh, they'll augment your records. So they'll add a field and they'll they'll put their token. In there, oh. so the most efficient way for me to build what I'm doing, which I didn't, ha- I didn't have the the opted op- option of doing, was to whenever a record's created, you know, fill it in with my tokens, and that could be a double metaphone or a single metaphone or a soundex or you know whatever, mm-hmm. and then I search on the token, yeah, or match on the token. Okay. So they do some pre, they basically pre-process all your data and store some artifact in, yeah. in it. Okay. In, in systems n- not Salesforce, usually that would be a separate table where you'd have some kind of relational system where you'd have just a, a really high performant index table of all your tokens and you the can't records. Do this with Salesforce and the record IDs that those go to, and then you would just do a simple join after that. I know people probably get sick of me playing that. Uh, can't do this, but it's so fun! It's so funny. <laughs> you know what? When I doing a clip, I just I don't know that I've ever managed to work in. Um, and I was just thinking about this because, man, people probably think I'm a jackass, right? Yeah. Not think. We, we a got, jackass. <laughs> not think. We got feedback that you were, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. There's no mystery. Yeah. There's no mystery anymore in our relationship. It doesn't matter because... Jeremy was right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. That, that sounds like that's kind of fun. Is this the one you were, they said you had basically spent a bunch of your own time on? I did. I, I spent like... Well, it, it was frustrating. The fun because, of being a contracting consultant, right? <laughs> you, you end up spending half of your time well, non-build. I was pissed because this requirement to do this this type of matching um, came last minute. Like it went live, and they're like, "Well, this wasn't matching." And I'm like, "Well, because that's that wasn't how it was designed. That wasn't the requirements. That's not how what the architect on this said to do." Yeah, and I'm using my air quotes here for architect. Yeah, where's the bell? I'm kind of pissed about the... Get the bell. You got the bell. You got to you ding yourself. There you go. I'm pissed about the level of architecture uh, on this project because... And I think words mean something. When, when someone says, I'm the architect or I'm the solution architect or I'm the technical architect, I expect a certain degree of... A certain uh, level of information or at least of... What's the right word? 
quality? I don't know. I, I, well, <clears throat> yeah, and the, I mean, I guess the 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 beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? With, when it comes to the, these terms. Well, what I was frustrated with is is obviously they didn't understand the requirements enough. So whenever I built whatever I built, I I, I had I had no idea how they were going to test it. I didn't know how I was going to test it. I, my unit testing was just basic. I was Some like, say- I have no scenario here to build my test my my test cases on to say, okay, yes, I cover all the valid scenarios that they could happen. I, I just guessed. It's more it's more code coverage than anything. Some people say that the first thing you should figure out on a project is how you're going to test it, and you should actually define those tests, and that then you know what you can go build, what you need to go build. Well, I'm a big one- fan of stories. I'm a big fan of of use cases or stories or whatever you want to call it, where you have an actor. And that actor does an action, and you 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 have the you know the triggering and the the kind of output that you're supposed to get. But do you see what I'm saying though? If you define what the test, then you're actually when you do that, you're defining what the behavior of the what the expected behavior of the system is. Well, it of depends course, on how granular you get with that. Because I'm not I'm not a fan of getting too granular with it. I'm, I'm I'm okay with you know user walks up to the system, types in their name, and hits enter to authenticate. System authenticates and put or you know sends the user to the home page by default. Yeah. Or looks up what their default homepage is and redirects them to that. You know so that that's a story to me. How about this test? Um, you're de- you're developing a dupe blocking system, and the test should be able to, uh, if you type in the the full word, you know, Mister, it should also match on Mr. Period. That's a good test, right? That's a good test, yeah. And so you're kind of you're defining tests, and you should all, and you you know especially if you write those tests up front, that's cool. Um, but then you go implement the stuff, and then you see your tests start to pass. Yeah. Hey, not not a bad methodology, I think. I don't know. Well, I just I just had a lot of battling of people coming back and saying your code doesn't work or this doesn't work, and I'm like, okay, well, first, what doesn't work? Send me an example because that's all I would get. I was like, it's not working. You should have replied back and said, works for me. <laughs> and I'd be like, uh, my tests are, are at a hundred. I have a hundred percent code coverage because everything's abstracted away into backend processes, so there's really no error handling. Everything just bubbles up and throws whenever it needs to. I was gonna say, if you have got error handling and, and much conditionals at all, it's it's very it's very hard to get a hundred percent code yeah. coverage. And in fact, that, it's, it's usually makes, to, it usually makes no sense whatsoever to have to have over you know eighty five ninety. That's why whenever I say a hundred percent, I I'm, I have to I have to add in saying yeah, I have no error handling. That's why I got a hundred percent. Yeah. Because I have no error handling. It's just it's all triggered mechanism, and I needed to bubble up. I did have error handling, but I, I ended up swallowing more information than I needed to. How did it taste? It was horrible. It was bitter. Sounds disgusting. It was bitter. It's bitter to swallow errors. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, then it becomes see. my problem. You, when I when right, I when yeah. I throw the exception, it's it's whoever triggered it. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have. You should have provided that value, and yeah. it wouldn't have erred. Give you a trigger warning for your triggers. Yeah. So I have, um, I don't know, I've got, I've got uh, well, I have some clips from a, a recent conference, and I've also got, um, there was an interesting thread in the Salesforce, you know, Reddit, or is it, a, what is it called, a, the subreddit, is that what they're called? And I just, it's it, the devil's it, playground, Jeremy. And I just, I just pulled, uh, I, I pulled just some excerpts from that, and I thought we could talk through those at some point, so I don't know what order you, also, I wanted to ask you, um, I saw that there is a new Skype coming, and it looks kind of interesting. And I wanted to know if uh, you'd seen that and if you had any feedback. It's coming? I haven't seen it. It's not, out, it's not out yet. So, Is it for f- mobile or is it for... It's, they're really like, I don't want to say socializing, but they kind of are. Um, it's... Let's it, get like, For example, it's going to have Where's highlights. What's that song? Oh, yeah. Let's see. Your um, vamp for me more. I even get over to my fake soundboard. <laughs> I was gonna say I haven't I haven't really touched Skype. I barely log in unless you ping me and say, "Hey, can I talk to you?" Social. Social. <laughs> social media. 
Yeah, I missed that one. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't ever get on it unless you ping me and say I, I, I need to see something, and I'm not in the office and we see, can't I, Skype. I live on Skype. I mean, I, I just a lot of the people I work with are on Skype too, so we just. Uh, I don't. You know, but tool. are you are you texting on it or are you are you on, I, on the? I will, but on the phone. I don't use. I use. I think I used to use more texting on Skype than I do now. Now it's I'm either texting in Slack, which is yeah. not. I know it's not texting, but I'm either communicating with messaging on Slack. Messaging or, is a better word, yeah. Or via actual SMS or like iMessage. I'm not doing as much texting through Skype. I do sometimes. It just depends. It's it's kind of random. Like on people that I that I Skype with, but I also Slack with, and I also I am with if I'm or a text if I'm on my phone. I mean, if I'm at my computer and I've got all three of those equally available, like which one do I do? I'm not quite sure here. You need, you need to status, establish a system of record there. <laughs> That's the problem. It's they're all competing systems of record. No, Slack is usually where I stay. Um, and I need a universal search that searches across all these. That's that's the problem. You've you've now siloed your conversations into these you know three no, or four. No, you're different solving silos. for the wrong problem. The problem is you have way too many ways to communicate. You need I to know, simplify. I know. But do you really <laughs> want to give like everything to Slack or like? Well, you can't. I mean, Slack can't do the things that Skype can do. It's a trade-off. I mean, you you gotta you just you gotta not, nothing's gonna be perfect. Nothing's gonna do everything. And if if it does, it's probably gonna be really expensive, like Salesforce. <laughs> See, I should have I should have bought I should have bought in hook, line, and sinker to Chatter, and then I wouldn't have this problem. I I, I can't use Chatter. I really do not like it. I, I just there, find there are a lot of people that, who do and well, like I, I find and I'll, with some exceptions that basically no one's using Chatter, as far as I can tell. No, there are people use. I have clients who are using. It, I have customers who are using it. And, well, I, they're using it. Okay, in my experience, they're using it now in in. They they used the, okay. They tried to use it all in like we're going to use it just for general chatting and group chatting all these things. And now what I see and there's still some of that obviously, um, but I see mainly people using it as a a, um, a a history on a record. Yeah, people will chatter each other about records. It's and almost like they'll they'll add some something that would normally go in as a task or like they have a meeting and they'll want to put a note in there instead of like adding a note or adding a task or adding yep. an event. It goes into chatter, so it's becoming it's just data now. It's not it's just free form unstructured data. Well, I think, you know, that chatting about records, like on records, I think that's one of the most natural use cases of chatter anyway. So I th- it's not surprising that that's the one that seems to have had the most, you know, staying power. Yeah. But anyway, um, so back to Skype. They added this thing called highlights, which is, they're kind of like Instagram stories, which I know you don't do. And also, um, well, I guess Instagram stories, they, they copied that from Snapchat. I think Snapchat had stories. Yeah, everything, apparently, every new feature of Instagram lately has been copied from Snapchat. Yeah, Instagram already has... I think I think it's like, I think it's like ten times the number of stories users now that that Snapchat did. And they they Snapchat invented it. Do you have an Instagram I, account? I do, but I just I don't. I forget to use it. I don't know what, what it about is. Snapchat. I think I'm just too old for it. I do have Snapchat. I use Snapchat a lot more than I do Instagram. What about Tinder? I do not use Tinder. I don't have to. I've never had Tinder. <laughs> not that I get you to slip. <laughs> no. I'd probably get in trouble if I had Tinder. Um, but probably. They, but uh, so also now it went when you're in Skype. Apparently, you're going to have because there are because everyone can have stories, and they're also really enhancing the how you communicate with people. So let me let me uh, for, okay. So you can you can personalize Skype by picking your favorite colors, and re- you can react to anything and chat with like emoti- uh, with emoticons. So they've got the reactions now. Hmm. Um, you uh, you can you react using emoticons in video calls. They're also doing like a thing where you can you can you'll be able to co-game with people. Now it's going to be only the Microsoft games at least out of the box, but you can co-game. They're also going to have like co-watching videos, like video streams. So you okay. can basically say, "Hey, let's watch this YouTube video." You know, you can either like you and another person, or you or even like a multi, like a bigger bigger group, and you can you'll all be watching the same stream, and it'll be you'll be watching in the, you know in the same time like time code sync or whatever. 
Um, but anyway, because it's got all this stuff, and people are going to be not just not just texting back and forth and chatting back and forth with each other, but also just updating their status. And and uh, they're also adding like if you just I think it's if you swipe left, you get uh, your camera comes right up, just like was it Facebook? I mean, I think all these apps do this now. So yeah. now Skype's going to have that. You just swipe swipe left, and there's your camera, so you can you know, take a picture of your food or your face or whatever people do. But so you're going to have like a feed, and so. Not only do you have like your own feed of stuff you've done, but when when you open Skype, you'll see a feed of of all your friends, just like Facebook or Instagram. So they're really pushing this into the social game. And I'm just thinking, I mean, it's interesting, but I, there's two couple of things I think. One is I don't know if I want my Skype to do that. I don't know if that's what I want Skype to be. I mean, if I'm just if I want to be just the crotchety old you know grouch who just wants to use it for texting and, and sharing screen. Can I will this? Can I keep this other crap out of my way? Is that a problem? You know, and and does Skype? Have, I think so. Did they have to do this? I mean, is that what's? This is not what Skype is. It's not what it's ever been. Yeah, but I wonder if these are just kind of basic features that people just would like to have there. I mean, there are things that I, I think. I feel like we already have these. We already have Instagram for that. We already have Facebook for that. We already have Snapchat for that. Do we, is this what we need Skype to be, or do we need it to be a really reliable communication tool, not a social media app? Well, I think that line's being blurred between communication well, and social media. Sure the hell is now, isn't it? <laughs> With this. I mean, I, I think, you know, communication... I, well, so, so many people are communicating on social media, and all these tools that were designed for real communication, not just, you know, posting your, your dinner, um, you know, they want to grow They want to grow and get more people in here, and so they're adding more of these social features in there to get people to kind of keep using those tools. And so you kind of get, to me, you kind of get the benefit of a really good communication tool with some social aspects to it. I guess. I, I mean, I don't know. I just don't want another social network that I'm supposed to keep up with somehow. Um, well, here, here's here's something that um, I think will push your buttons that they've got. Bots and chat add-ins. I'm not sure what the difference is. I guess it says when a bot gets integrated into a chat, then it's a chat add-in. Uh, but apparently Microsoft demoed um, a Cortana add-in, Scoop, which I think is a news thing. So you can just like text. Hmm. You can say, Scoop, what's happening? Or well, you know, tell me about you know this latest Donald Trump thing. What did Donald Trump recently tweet? <laughs> um, <laughs> I've got Giphy Cat, Giphy, MSN Weather, Search, which is powered by Bing, Polls, so there's a poll thing, Expedia, StubHub, Big Oven, YouTube, and Upworthy, to name a few. So these are all bots or chat add-ins? Or, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I guess they're nice. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, apparently this is already out on Android. I don't have that, so I, I don't know. And then uh, iOS in a month, and then Windows, Mac, Linux, and web this summer, along with Xbox. And it's, it's, it's so interesting how the, the number of devices that we need to cover now has exploded. It, you know, at first it was just your computer, and then, uh, and then we had to get a little more responsive for smaller screens like uh, laptops and things. And then it got even smaller with phones, and now we got a little bit bigger with iPads. But now... Now with with like these gaming systems that that offer browsers and and also their own app system or even your TVs as well that do that. Now we're having to cover Apple TVs and Xboxes and PlayStation Four or Playstations and you know just all these different devices where you know your app can run. Well, I mean if they're if they have quality implementations of a web browser, then if you are designing your and building your apps right, you should be okay. I mean because I think I think a long time ago we gave up on you know pixel perfect identical rendering all these things like it's 
it should render according to that device's you know attributes, screen size and capabilities and, and stuff. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's a lot of that, and I, I know I, I think I heard a podcast recently talking about React's efforts in that. I think they have like React Native that will try to mimic some of the native things. So it's kind of a further abstraction that will let you use components and it'll try to leverage the native components, that kind of thing. And then then there's all these other tools that, that try to compile down for those. Like they'll optimize for those, even though you built it and you have all this code, it tries to optimize for that environment, you know, depend like Xboxes and things like that. They, they're, they're great for, you know, running graphics and your video games, but they're not really good at processing other stuff because all that CPU power is being used somewhere else. Oh, the what's being used somewhere else? Oh, the CPU, CPU power? power, yeah. Oh. All right. I don't know. Speaking of uh, mobile responsive and all that, you know, one thing that's not responsive and it's just been, keeps coming, it's become a recent problem for me, oh, like three times in a row. You're going to say tables, aren't Tables you? are not responsive. Yeah. And I think I talked to you about that certain, I've got another problem with tables now, which is we basically, so it's, it, there's, I'm building this portal and it's mobile responsive and everything's, you know, it's been great so far. Mm-hmm. But we're now, you know, I'm implementing this, this feature where the user basically needs to be able to edit like a grid of information. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the natural way that I think I think of how to do this and that's certainly the way the, the client is thinking about how this works. They, that's how they envision it in their mind. And, you know, that's fine if you're sitting at a computer. But it does not work on a mobile phone. And the thing is, you know, if you're going to have a UI that is a grid that allows users to, like, kind of, you know, edit all these grid cells, uh, whether it's a drop-downs or text boxes, whatever, those kind of things. You've got, like, an in, like a, some kind of input in each one mm-hmm. or multiple. Um, you're not going to, you are not going to find a way to, to make that table responsive enough that it it shrinks down to a you almost you have to really build a separate interface, and you if do. you don't want people to do if it, to be pinching and zooming, well, to me, I've always found the you know editable tables to kind of lack in imagination. It's like we're, we're just going back to these tried and true Excel Listen, days. I almost I think I was gonna I don't know shout this or tweet it or something, but every you know everyone at the at the end of the day, and I'll use that overused term. <laughs> People want people want things to look like spreadsheets. They do. They want don't Salesforce they? to look like spreadsheets. They want everything they used to be a big spreadsheet, a, a glorified spreadsheet that they pay you know fifty grand a month for. That's what they want. Yep. It's frustrating. Well, <laughs> there, there's so many better ways to to deliver information or collect information or you know all that kind of stuff, and they want just some grid with some cells on it that you can type into and just keep going. Yep. This this data entry Excel yep. spreadsheet thing. I had one client this week. Complaining about Salesforce because I think they were up. I think they just recently renewed or are about to be up for renewal. So they're already frustrated because, of course, the price is going up. Um, but this 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 client had me do a bunch of replication and stuff into Access because that's he likes to go in and mess with the data and play with it and report on it and massage it. And he doesn't like the Salesforce reporting tools. And um, he basically said, for what we're paying for Salesforce, I'd rather just cut it off and just do this all in a spreadsheet. Yeah, he'd rather run the business on a spreadsheet than than to continue working with Salesforce and pay. And they they've made no effort to try to understand Salesforce or adopt the terminology. I can't even use Salesforce terminology with them. If I do, they get all over me about not using that terminology. I mean, John, there are there are spreadsheets that people are using that would cost, you know, well into the six figures to build out a an enterprise application that replaces that spreadsheet competently. Yes. <laughs> 
And it's like, then like, well, we, we put together the spreadsheet for two grand. You're telling me it's going to cost, you know, $400,000 to make an, you know, yes. Yeah. It's kind of, it, you know, it can be it's a, a double-edged it sword, isn't it? Well, it can, it can be a hard sell. Yeah. It, and, and I have a hard time convincing that they should do that. It's like, well, I'm not sure that you should. I know. It's working. You're, yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, and last time we talked about how the, the, you know, the, we were, I don't think we were necessarily extolling the virtues of spreadsheets, but I think it came off that way because some people are like, I can't tell if you guys were joking or not. <laughs> like, no, spreadsheets are actually pretty badass. No, I, one of, the, one of the first applications I ever built that got used that, that actually put me on the radar of, the, of people that I can actually build stuff was, um, it was an Excel spreadsheet. I, I, I was in sales and I, I was horrible at it and I needed a quoting tool because I had, there was no way at the time for me to say, hey, let's pick this record and this record and let's let's compare it and print it so I can compare it for the, because this was um, mail order, catalog ordering, PC sales. And so I had an easy way for me to select two products and do a comparison and then also print it and fax it to them so that I, so I could do that. Cause, and, and that came about because I was horrible at selling and I needed tools to help me seem like I knew what I was talking about. Uh, but it was all done in Excel. Like yeah. I had like the spreadsheet with all the tables and all the specs and I would click a button, it would pull data from that and, and transpose it and put it into another sheet and create sheets and 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 I could put pricing in and, and calculate, you know, discounts and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it turned out pretty nice towards the end. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's 2017, but I feel like it's still spreadsheets all the way down. Oh, you had to go there, huh? It's current year. Shouldn't be using spreadsheet interfaces. No. I get a ding every time I say that. It's 2017. No, well, I think my first, you know, quasi-professional job was a um, a sign printing shop. Paid me to. I created a. It was a Lotus One Two Three spreadsheet, and there was a plug because that's back when it was it was text mode. Mm-hmm. Lotus One Two Three was text mode. You had to know the the everything was slash commands to do anything. And there was a. But this was you know this was at the time where. VGA graphics was relatively new. It had been out for a couple of years, maybe. So people had, you know, 286s and 386s with VGA graphics. Mm-hmm. And there was a plug-in for a Lotus 123 that would put it in like a, I swear I started with a V, Ventura maybe, somebody probably knows. And it would put it into a kind of graphics formatting mode. So it was like this, it would put it into, you know, VGA mode. Mm-hmm. And then you could set, you know, formatting, high, uh, italics and underline and stuff. Ooh, getting fancy. Yeah, I know. But then when you actually want to do spreadsheet work, you'd have to, I think you, I think if I remember correctly, you'd have to, you know, escape or close out of that somehow. So you're back in one, two, three, and you can actually edit stuff. It was just a <laughs> formatting overlay, not a not a whole editing thing. Huh. Crazy. Um, well, let's uh what what topics do you have? I've got these clips we need to do, which might take a little while. Um well, we have some some uh questions. We can we can do questions. Let's do questions just to make sure that we we get to them. Okay. Uh, well, last week we talked about projects, and someone asked us to do a series. And um, I think probably a better way to handle that, which is what's been happening, is people are actually sending us very specific questions about projects. So maybe instead of us doing this kind of series of, this is the start of a project, this is the middle of a project, this is the end of the project, maybe people just send us very specific questions about projects yeah. and how they're run or, how, or what our opinions are on it. Because uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm the authority on how to run a project. Wait, maybe we should call the segment WWJJD. What does that mean? What would John and Jeremy do? Oh, you're asking for it then. <laughs> we need a safe harbor on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this one's from, uh, we can use names, so this is from Dr. Nick. Uh, let's see, this is about Bootstrap versus Zurb Foundation versus G- GSD. I don't know what GSD is. Versus squid, whatever. 
Uh, you've talked in the past for a successful project, project long-time goal being losing any framework, you, but you have any current favorites? I think it's supposed to be using. So you've talked in the past successful project, any frameworks. Do you have any current favorites? So current framework favorites. Like. Yeah. Um, I, I, my, I'm most familiar with Bootstrap. I, I've used that the most. And I, I mean, I've looked at some of the others. Uh, gosh, there's, yeah, well, how do you foundation. Feel about, how do you feel about these frameworks? It looks like a lot of them are like quick start type frameworks to get you up and running. How do you feel about long-term uh, use on those? Well, and that's what he's referring to. I talked about that last week. How you can, I'll often do a thing where I'll start out with, I'll just code something up real quick, mainly just because that's how I like to build stuff. I like to get in there, you know, validate just all kinds of things real quick. Um, our assumptions about how something might work or whether something is even possible. Mm -hmm. So, quick prototype with HTML and you know jQuery and and something like something like Bootstrap. Well, that's what I use Bootstrap usually. And then if it ends up going forward and things, you know, that project goes forward, and we're continuing to build, then I'll just slowly over time I'll start replacing uh, any place any places in the market where I've referred to Bootstrap CSS. Mm -hmm. I'll convert that to things that are more semantic to the application itself. And then when you look at the definition of that in my SAS, I might m m pull in some Bootstrap mix-ins into that. So I'm not saying Bootstrap won't ever go away. Right. But I'm but I certainly my goal would be to when you look at the HTML markup, you're not you're seeing really semantic CSS. You're not seeing pull right, red border, stuff like that. You're right. gonna see, you know, um media media block or whatever, you know semantic things. Yeah, and that's a good point because I think that's one of my problems with using these frameworks long term is is, that, is if you adopt something like BIM or something that tries to get away from things like red border and things like that that you know when you're using something like Bootstrap, Bootstrap is very much here's a red border, here's a blue button, here's a green button or you know that type of stuff. Yeah, this thing has padding of 20 and it's pulled right, yeah. you know. So uh, yeah, I think there's two levels. There's one um Convert, you know, ultimately doing kind of like an extract refactoring where you're extracting all of uh, all of the Bootstrap stuff stuff from your HTML markup into things like SAS mixins and extends and things like that. Yeah, and then you can take it to the next level of if it makes sense and whatever. Ultimately, even removing uh, getting removing any dependency, even on even on SAS processing, for, you know, removing any uh, dependency on Bootstrap. It just depends. I mean, it, you know. Bootstrap is very valuable, and it, it, if it doesn't make sense to completely remove it or remove it all, then don't remove it. But yeah. it, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, on short projects, it may be just fine. I mean, that's ex kind of exactly what Bootstrap is for. I think people abuse Bootstrap, and you'll see full fledged apps that are just full of the most non-semantic, tons of duplicate uh, classes. You know, the CSS is an absolute mess. If you do, if you use these tools, they'll give you metrics on how you. It, it's just. You know, you'll have so many different classes that have, that, for example, the same exact font definitions, and you know, it's just it's just a mess. And that's not how you're. I mean, that's just not a great way to use Bootstrap. That's not a great way to do CSS in general. But yeah, I think I think another dangerous slope when it comes to some of these frameworks is when they start getting into theming. So they go beyond specific markup around components or styling around components, and they start getting into this kind of secondary layer of here's a theme, here's a dark theme, here's a light theme, here's a I don't know lightning design system theme. Well, now everything's tied into that to how that markup is rendered. It is, yeah. And you're stuck. You've kind of stacked one dependency on another. And then now you have to unwind both of those dependencies right. if you ever hope to you know, improve the state of that application. Right. All right, second, second question. Same thing, Dr. Nick. It was mentioned at a Lightning workshop uh, by some participants that the only, way to, the only way Lightning will be successful is if a builder is implemented. Any particular reason Squid was not bought for the purpose, and do you agree with that statement? 
I mean, that's a John question. Since you know more about, you've got a lot more experience. I don't have any experience with uh, Squid. Yeah, I think Squid is, that. that's what made Squid more powerful, in, especially in terms when Lightning came out. When it was announced and everything, I mean, yes, you had all this new framework and everything, and you could you can drag and drop your components, but how do you create those components? You still needed a, a developer to go in and create those components. Um, and so Squid kind of bridged that gap because you could actually just through declarative tools and drag and drop build a component, build a UI, and you could inject that. So I think that's kind of where Squid kind of stands out, including not just the UI layer, but also the modeling, the data model. You can have, you know, you can bring in data mo- data from, you know, three different tables and bring them together and they don't have to join. You just bring them in and filter them correctly and you can access them and you can create all these composite screens. Um, now, I, I would like to see Lightning get there and I kind of agree. I think I think if Lightning can get to that point where it has some kind of builder, some kind of way for you to model data for your component and things like that, that in terms of the declarative side of things, it'll be much more powerful. I don't know what, how do I, I don't know exactly what he means by builder, but I mean, there have been you know, the, the biggest, most successful and, and well-capitalized tech companies in the world that have tried to build builders that help you, that build UIs and things for you, and mm-hmm. they always break down at a certain point. There and is e- a limit. And even with Squid, I mean, you know, they like to say they're a, uh, like a, is a, like a no-code or a low-code or whatever, but e- and even on applications, you can have an application in, in Squid, because I've seen you do it, that it may not have a ton of code, but, well, you sure need an experienced, like, front-end engineer that, that knows what they're doing. Because even though this may not be a lot of coding in terms of like the numbers of lines of code or something like that, mm-hmm. like you're still, I mean, there's still all sorts of things to consider in terms of performance and data sizes and and there's all kinds of logic stuff and how things can be laid out and just flow. I mean, there's there's all kinds of skills that go into this. UX yeah. skills and data skills, whatever. And and, and I think that's I, kind of, it, it, it leverages, well, it's kind of the same conversation we have around Process Builder as well. You know, yeah, you can drag and droppy, but you know, should you be doing it that way? Should you, you know, do you understand what it means whenever you go and loop through 100 records and then spawn off a transaction for each one of those one by one instead of processing them in batches? You know, those kind of things. It's, you, these, these tools are there and they have these these really easy declarative mechanisms, but you still have to understand and have some kind of thought around how that's going to work, what it does to the system performance-wise, how that interacts with other things in the system that are occurring at the same time. And the UI is no different. You know, you're going to load a screen and maybe, yeah, you, you created this really great composite screen that pulled everything from everything in the entire system. Well, guess what? It won't load yeah. because you, you you filled the pipe too much with a bunch of stuff. Yeah, and I know we, we go back to this all the time, but I always just think, you know, as Salesforce adds more and more, you know, low-code, no-code capabilities, the, the question that will just not, is not going, it's going to become more, I think, forefront is, okay, let's say you could build a large system, a large complex system using nothing but these declarative drag-and-drop tools. I mean, just because you can build a system that doesn't have, uh, you know, abstraction and reuse and modularization and things like that, and and tests even, Mm -hmm. just because you can do that, should you? Because it's all the abilities that come into, is this a testable system? Is it reliable? Is it extendable? Is it even understandable? Is it maintainable? And on any... If you are building a, a system of that size that's non-trivial and that's obviously very important to the business, like all those abilities become very important. Now, if you're just building a couple of, if you're just doing a, extending a couple of CRM screens here and there, I think that I think some of these tools are great for that. But it's, it's really going to, I mean, what's going to make a really good admin consultant, architect, whatever is is people who know how to make those, who understand those trade-offs. 
who yeah. who who can do it both ways, and, and I, or or at least under they understand enough about the more coding side that they get what the trade offs are. They, uh, you know, maybe you um you know there's the people that do that are not as available or they're more expensive, and you know it maybe it makes deployments more complicated or something. But here's the benefits, or or here's the if we don't do any of that and we just do you know build a bunch of drag and drop you stuff. Here's the advantages, but also here are the disadvantages. And for this project, and for what we think this org is going to need to do, and all this stuff, like here's why we decided this because we made these trade offs, and mm-hmm. it's just you got you know that's going to be. I think people who, and I don't know what you what do you call that. That's um, it's kind of an architect. I mean, in a way, it's it's more than an admin. But I mean, I think I think a lot of people who are admins right now, that's the kind of stuff they should be thinking about, especially if they're if they are looking to expand their role somewhat. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's just an evolution of your skill set and gaining experience and learning what what you can do and what you can't. Or, what what not so much what you can't do, but what you shouldn't be doing. You know, knowing the things you don't know. But I think, in terms of Salesforce and, and their goals and and you know their priorities, you know, adding more of these tools can only help them sell more licenses. I mean, the the, the idea that oh, it, you that, can drag and yeah. drop and build an interface. You don't need another. Yep, here we go again. You don't need a developer to do this. That sells licenses. Yeah. Well, there there is. I mean, you're I mean, basically telling Mr. CIO, you know, keep paying that that guy forty a year to be your your Salesforce admin. You don't need to hire a two hundred fifty a year developer. Well, I mean, you hit the, you hit the nail. I mean, it's all about selling licenses. That's that's the name of the game, right? It is absolutely my dream, and I'm dedicated to being the fastest to ten billion. Of course, they're there, but before they even got there, it you know they they changed it to twenty billion. So it's just this. Yeah. It's I don't I don't I I don't know. Obviously, Salesforce has prioritized revenue growth over you know, over profit, over all kinds of things, but also including like the, <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to start the <laughs> Salesforce bashing thing or just like uh, all the different things I would do differently because it's not my company. Yeah. Well, the, uh, he asked another question. There was another part of that, which was why didn't Salesforce buy Squid? Yeah, and I have an answer for that, and I think it comes down to the same reason they built their own proprietary language, the same reason they built their own proprietary framework, their Aura framework, and that's because they need control. This is running on their servers. Uh, Squid runs primarily client-side, a lot of it. I mean, it'll go to the database to get data, but most of it's running client-side. And Salesforce, in order to do the things they want to do and control the aspects of their platform they want, they need control. But doesn't Lightning run a lot more client-side? It does, but you have Locker Service, which abstracts you away from the window and document. But they could have... They have control. So so I don't think it's it's, uh, necessarily accurate to say that if they had bought Squid, they couldn't have done those things. They still could have had control. They still could have implemented Locker. They added Locker, right? I mean, they, they probably still could have done those Not things. Not really, because just... the UI and the components and everything that, mm-hmm. that are rendered are client-side. It's it's basically, you know, um, you know templating system with, with, you know, hooks into a data model system with some hooks into some business logic systems. And you, com- you kind of kit that all together to create your screen. And Salesforce is looking at this more from a platform perspective, you know, that you have your, your Aura tags and you have your Lightning tags and you have all these things that do some magic in there and they have to interact and they have to, they have to use very specific APIs in order to, to navigate or to open a window and, you know, all those things. And, you know, this is very client, you know, Squid is very client side. It's much more open. It's, it's more free range than, than, than Salesforce is. Salesforce is the lockdown, you know, scan your badge to get in type system. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of it just had to do with the fact that Salesforce, I, I, I think they did look at Squid. I mean, they obviously invested in Squid, and I think it was on their radar to, is this a technology we can kind of fold in and just offer? But I think ultimately, from an engineering perspective, they wanted that control. They needed yeah. that control. It, yeah, it's hard to say why they didn't. Obviously, they thought enough of it because they were an early investor. Salesforce Ventures was in, uh, mm-hmm. in Squid. 
But and I think maybe, you know, and there's probably two sides of that story too. I think Squid wants to build out their platform. I think they feel they have a really good product and they they want to they want to see that through. Yeah. All right, last one from Nick. And I, this one I think gets a little bit uh darker. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, this is a more philosophical one. Influence of events versus work. How do you prioritize work and get passionate over a task after hearing about world news events such as a terror atta- terrorist attack or personal issue, breakup, family disaster? I recall having to walk from home from office when for a week straight mid a data cleanup task. Man, I work on your grammar. <laughs> I was looking out the window at the mountains covered in smoke from Black Saturday bushfires, which killed 173 people. The concept of bereavement leave is a weird one, compartmentalizing a very human condition. Yeah, that was that was hard to read, but I think I think overall it's just kind of you know how do you stay how do you stay focused on your work when you have so many external factors influencing you? Well, obviously that's something that's very difficult, and I feel like this question's above my pay grade, but it, it seems very dehumanizing or insulting even to say you know compartmentalize that. <laughs> Uh, obviously, if you need to take time for things, you, you probably should. Ultimately, it's uh, you're gonna. It probably is the best. It's probably the healthiest yeah. route to go, and you'll probably be back to a productive state faster than if you try to ignore it and just plow through it. But that being said, everyone is different. Some people are more suited to plow through things. It actually helps them. Um, it's a part of their, you know, grieving or whatever process or dealing with things to just have something to focus on. That actually helps them. So it's. I think it's just way too individual, and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pass from Jeremy. Yeah. I, if if I'm gonna just it was kinda, a soft pass because I did answer, but it was a soft pass. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I I can only speak to to my own experience, and I can tell you that there was a time when I was trying to build my career and trying to prove myself to everyone around me that that I can do this, and I'm a hard worker, and I would stay up all night working, and I would ignore my health. But you still do that. To this day. No, I'm a little bit better about it. Give me that much. I told you, John, we like you. People think you're a nice guy. <laughs> and, you're, and you're pretty good looking, too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to go turn red. but uh, I made John blush. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very hard. Yes, it is. I'm dark-skinned. How can you tell? If you can see, if you can see me blushing, yeah, then I'm that. really blushing. Oh, yeah. Cheek's a little rosy. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. I can tell you that, you know, during that time in my life when I was really working hard to prove, I did ignore, I, I did not do things with my family because I was, I had to work. I had to prove myself. I did ignore my health in certain situations where I probably should have gone to a doctor or should have taken a day off. There are years where I didn't go on vacation or even just take some down, downtime. I was just working, working, working. Um, and I think, I think once, when you get in that mode, you, you forget that there's more to life than just work. There's more to life than any of this. And the job is not that important. You know, this, and, 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 you know, this was a, a Bob Rose quote. Oh, gosh. <laughs> to bring him back. Uh, he, he, at one point, he was giving some grand, grandiose speech. He's, he's almost like a mini Benioff at times. <laughs> but uh, he said something that stuck with me for years. And that's like, the, the things we're doing, you know, no one's going to die from it. We're not building, you know, systems something that's going to go into your heart or something that's going to keep you alive. Actually, we're, we're building computers. Well, you know, some of us, some they're going to be used for someone to make some movie, right. some graphics on a movie, you know, because we were doing a bunch of, you know, huge, you know, mainframe server bills and things like that yeah. that did graphics renderings. And, uh, you know, it stuck with me. It's like, that's right. I mean, because I'm not here tomorrow because I need an extra day to do, to have some time with my family does not mean that the system's going to go down and the world's going to end and we're going to, the country's over. Yeah, right, right. You know, life life moves on. Right. 
I'm not that important. Now, if you do build pacemakers or you know, defense systems or any of these other kinds of things, then well, I, even I, I then, don't know what to tell even, you. Even then, even <laughs> you're then, not I, helping these people. Well, John. Hold on, hold on. That's not even an excuse. <laughs> I, I recently, this is anecdotally because I just, I'm this stuck. I it was last week or something. I read or heard some statistic that said that if if you're if you're in trouble and your 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 fate is to be decided by a judge, you want a judge who has eaten at least an hour before he has to make that decision. That you know, you don't want a hangry judge. Yeah, right? you don't want a hangry judge. So yeah, you, <laughs> even if you're in a position of of power like that, like a judge or you're a surgeon or something, you want to be healthy and fit when you go to do your thing because otherwise, those those people who have bad days ruin other lives. Yeah. Anyways, that's that's my response to that. Cool. Well, those were good questions. Thanks, Doctor Nick. Hey, we have another question. Uh, this one's. Yes, we can use a name. So this one's from Leo. Uh, he says, how are you? How are you, Jeremy? I That's question one. pretty good. Wish I would have gotten a little bit more sleep. I wish I'd have eaten less and drank a little less last night. But other than that, I'm good. Oh, I thought you were going to say eating less, drank more. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you guys always talk about agile and releasing early, and I agree with all that. Do you think such approach would work for larger global invitations in a single org? I ask this because some of the larger products I worked on had a, had a defined define slash design phase with a few things that needed to be set in stone before we even started. They were successful projects. Programs ran at, glo- at a global level. What are your thoughts on such a waterfallish approach? So read me the, his, his, his example again. Uh, he, he'd worked on larger products uh, that had a def- defined design phase. There's some kind of discovery requirements phase. Um, where they had to mm. decide on a few things that had to be set in stone. So I guess there was some really hard, firm requirements that there's, there's I, I, probably whittling down the requirements to a set of this is the must-haves MVP stuff, and this is the stuff that is a nice-to-have, a phase two type thing. Well, I don't, know, I, I don't know if he's talking about features as much as, you know, when you're making like the decision, for example, like, will we use Salesforce or not? I mean... That's no, a decision think, that requires lots of meetings and and steak dinners and and three year contracts <laughs> and huge checks being written and all kinds of right. So that's something you kind of have to decide up front or not. Are we going to build this on Salesforce or not? Well, no, I think I think it's more about you know <clears throat> you you have a set of requirements. You you know what you kind of need to build. And in, in terms of an agile process, you know where do you where do you define your sprint? You know where do you define what gets built first and where do you define what gets built next? You know how do you start that? Well, so just in general, I mean, I'm I'm a pretty huge fan of yeah uh, an agile process where we are releasing very regularly, and and that we, we're and we're you know they call it backlog grooming in some in some circles, but you basically you know on a on a regular basis you are looking at your backlog and making sure that you're working on the most important either the most important things in terms of business value. Or the some of the riskiest things, or the things that really need to be tested out for feasibility or whatever. If you're always working on those things first, then you are. That, that's the best risk mitigation you can do. That that is much better than spending six months making sure your requirements are perfect. That's actually the worst kind of risk mitigation because you have validated nothing. You've learned nothing. You haven't even started square one yet. But I think that's typical of some of these larger organizations where. You know, especially enterprise where you have multiple divisions and you're trying to get down to a single org. I mean, I saw that firsthand. They they spent a ton of money. I was downtown, middle of New York, probably a block away from, you know, whatever, oh. you know. And, you know, about all the business leaders, 
of these divisions. I mean, very expensive people, you know, staying in a very expensive city, uh, sitting in a very expensive office. And we sat there for two days. And I, th- and I made this joke last time, but I think the only thing del- deliverable we had at the end of those two days was a project name. Yep. They're, they're absolutely, I mean, it kills business value. It, it makes it, it, it's, it digs such a deep hole up front in the project that you are unlikely to ever be able to dig out of it in terms of that project. Number one, actually make, seeing the light of day, but also returning enough business value to pay for what all the waste that happened during the process. And I think and, that gets ignored. I think, and I see it as it's happening and I'm like, is no one, you know, tallying what this is costing? Because uh, geez, we just spent like probably a quarter of our budget on defining requirements. Yeah. And you look around that, you look around this, you know, executive table that everyone's sitting at and you're like, this is literally a, a like, you know, $5,000 per hour meeting we're having and yeah. we're doing it for two days, yeah. <laughs> you know, or even worse. I mean, especially when you consider people's, um, you know, travel expenses and everything. Yeah. It's, just, it's ridiculous. Um, now, the thing I think also to try to figure out in a, in, a, in a situation if you've got a really big project or big companies, you've got to figure out how to split the project up. I mean, it's like, I really I really believe in kind of like the, some people call it like a two-pizza team. It, it's, your project needs to be big enough that, you know, I, I think, for example, a great product size is, is you know, maybe th- no more than six people. Um, or, or ideally no more than six people. Certainly, like, I'd cut it off at like eight or ten. It's just a hard max. The and that's prob- pretty fair, but I mean, it, the number of people is is not as big of an issue, I think, as competing requirements. When you're trying to get, you know, six, you know, individual business owners trying to come together and to build a single system that works for everyone. Well, I think I think that's what I'm saying is you have to figure out how to break that what you're calling a single system up, and that's hard. That takes that takes smart, experienced people. To do that, and does that happen in kind of this kind of waterfallish type, uh, you know, upfront? Hey, let's sit down and talk about, and just get our wrap our heads around this. Maybe we're not defining requirements, but maybe we're right. just sitting down for two days, just trying to wrap our heads around yeah. what what it is we're trying to do. And, and that's a great example, I think, that put this point you just made of this is not black and white. It's not like we can't do anything upfront. It's not that we can't document anything. It's just that we we do just enough planning upfront. We do just enough documentation because we all know that anytime you do more than just enough documentation, it ends up out of date. No, or no one looks at it. Or even worse, it's it's actually it's actually wrong. Yeah, <laughs> which is like the same thing as out of date. And people rely on they they make decisions based on that documentation. Ended up you know you know bad things can happen because mm-hmm. um, they relied to. Um, so yeah, you should do some upfront planning. I mean, one of the biggest questions you have to ask is should we do this project? You know, how, what do we think the value we're going to get out of this is? And what is it, what do we think this might cost us to do? And those are both very difficult questions to answer. And, and you really can't answer them with any kind of great certainty. I mean, it just takes some people who have been through those kinds of things before to, to help estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you have to figure that up and if you have to figure that out. And then you have to figure out, okay, well, this, this is huge. This is going to take a hundred people over the next three years to do this. How do we even, how do we remotely, you know, even come close to managing a project like that? Well, Again, the first thing I start doing is, is figuring out how do we how do we split this up. Now we do have to define how these. If we're going to split this up into six different you know projects, mm-hmm. um, how do we do that? Do we split it up by you know level? What level it is in the architecture? Do we split it up by um, its its functionality? How and how do then if you are going to split them up? How do you how do they seem together? Are do you know do you find inter, do you define interfaces that you know essentially contracts between the two things? Do you have like a loosely coupled uh, service-oriented architecture? Is it microservices? I mean, there's all kinds of... This is this is tough because this is... 
it's all these business skills and mm-hmm. uh, that you have to have to be able to do this. But to execute it requires all these te- you know technical skills. How do you use the latest technologies, the things like microservices and cloud computing and whatever, to to be to really agile and to be able to spin up and spin down and and have and have and build things in such a way that you know project A can make changes that don't break project B or they're not so tightly coupled. So it's you know understanding loose coupling and there's just so much stuff you know. But this is and these are, these are hard things. This is why you. This is why, <laughs> this is also why. And I, I know I, I sometimes really irritate people. I'm just like I'm always you're always looking for the top ten percent of people. I mean, you don't, you can't always have them, and, and and sometimes, or or you're looking for people who who may be uh, not a senior in terms of experience, mm-hmm. but they're made up of the like the right stuff that they they absorb things fast. They're they're eager to learn. They're, you know all that kind of stuff. But yeah. you really want to be. It's all about the people. Yeah, good. If you have a good team, good people, they will deal with your crappy process or your good process, whatever. But they'll, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas if you don't, if you don't have the right people, you know, I don't care how good your process is, how much, how great your documentation is, or any of this other stuff. You know, they're probably their chances of success just aren't near as high. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, second, second, and last question from Leo. Uh, if you were only allowed to use declarative tools. What would be your golden rules to organize domain logic? I'm setting up a topic on how to uh, best organize configuration to be easy to debug, modular, and reusable for an admin crowd, and want to hear your thoughts on it. So, uh, my standard answer to this, and it's a great one, is read the first three, at minimum, the first three chapters of domain-driven design, mm-hmm. and then read them again, and then read them again. <laughs> Um, the things around like ubiquitous language, um, and it's kind of hard to describe these. I really, I really can't do it justice. You really have to get the book. I would buy the book from everyone on your team. And but that, I mean, but this is from a perspective of how do you apply that methodology or you know ideology, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> to to declarative tools to the to the realm of point and clicky. Um, I don't know. I mean, I. Again, I don't use a lot. If you're talking about things like process builder and things, I don't. Um, I just don't do a lot of that. And maybe well, you, if if you were to sit down and do a process, and you know, how would you approach it? I mean, would you? Because I, I don't. I don't know. Are you, you mean a, a a process builder? Yeah. I mean, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think I think number one, you need to understand your domain, right? And again, ubiquitous um, ubiquitous language. Understanding what the things are in your domain and and what events can happen and what size and shape things are, and well, making making sure everyone has the same like mental model of what all these things are, and and also learning how to bend your domain a little bit to to fit within the requirements of the system you're building it on mm-hmm. the technology. I I think a, a a big part of this is understanding the technology that you're using to try to apply this. I, I think I think what you said earlier was fair. You know, go and go and read read the book, get a good understanding of you know how to manage that domain logic from from that perspective. And it's not even and, honestly, it's not even about understanding your how to manage it. It's just it's how to think about a domain, how to how to and how to document it, or how to how do you have shared mod, uh, shared understanding of of your domain. Yeah, but I think I think one important thing about any of these or any of these uh, methodologies or anything is is understanding how granular you get with things. You know, where what's the cutoff and how do you how do you organize it and how do you split it up? Because, and I think you have that same problem with declarative with process builder because you can call other processes, you can call flows, you can call code, and and so it becomes this kind of mental exercise of 
where do I draw the line? You know, what do what what specialty do I put the process builder in? Is it is it kind of like a, a triggering system, a very config, highly configurable triggering system, or is it a true logic engine? Yep. You know, is is Flow kind of more of a UI wizard builder, or is it my logic engine? Is Code my logic engine? Is you know, it's it's understanding what capability those tools are and how you want to use that tool. I think. Yeah. Um, you can can I blow your mind for a second? Sure. Every pick list in Salesforce is nothing but a yet to be normalized custom object. It's a custom object that hasn't you haven't broken it out yet into a custom object. And that's and this is the reason I said it's because it's I kind of believe that's true. But also it's the it's always a question of God, do we make this a custom object that's like a related list of things or mm-hmm. or do we keep it as a pick list? I'm trying to think of an example here. Um, well, that's true because when, when like let's say you have let's say you have a custom object that's a car. I always look at the parking lot see cars. So I'm trying to think of an example, and you want to know what factory it was built at, which factory it was built at, and so okay. do you have a drop down list, a pick list of just names of your factory, or is factory a custom object because you're eventually going to need to know where that factory is, what its hours are, what its you know who knows return policy or uh, any number of things that you know. Is factory a, f- a fully fledged uh, object in your domain? Yeah. And if you, you, of course, you can't go around to all your pick lists and turn them into custom objects because that's probably some kind of premature optimization. But on the other hand, <laughs> this, the con- as we say, the concrete sets very fast in Salesforce land. It does. And it can be almost impossible to do that kind of refactoring. Well, Especially if there's code tied around that pick list, I, I think I don't think it's impossible. Uh, it's not even, impossible. Even no. if there's code attached to it, I think there's just a lack of appetite for it. People, because it's expensive. It's it is expensive. Extremely hard, and and it works. It maybe not work a hundred percent, but then you try to do some kind of ROI on it to say, you know, if we made that a custom object, we're able to provide so much more information. We're supposed to get so much more information out of it, but it's going to cost us a hundred grand to do. Is that worth it? Yeah, especially like, okay, it would have cost us $1,000 had we done it in the first week, but now that it's six months later and we've got all the stuff built around, it's going to cost $100,000 because that's how hard it is to unwind some of the stuff <laughs> yeah. and rebuild it. Yeah. And that's why it's like, well, God, maybe we should just make every, all the pick list custom <laughs> objects now just in case, right? <laughs> but that's obviously that's not a good... That's uh, it's, 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 exactly. thing. You'll run out of ability to query things because you can't do a single <laughs> join view. Yeah. That's what Salesforce needs. Salesforce needs views. So yeah, let's not get into open-ended <laughs> list of what Salesforce needs. No, but mine, mine definitely blown because I, you know, when I back in the day when I was writing, you know, building databases, um, that is one of the things. Do I make this, a, you know, a table that with a join? Is this, is you know, is this a, you know, is this just is this an ID? And a lot of times it was because you wanted to be able to change the name and you need the ID reference. The way Salesforce does it, I wouldn't have done it. But I kind of see the advantages of it because it's pure text. But it means if you need to change the name or something, then it's doing this find and replace across the whole system. Although they do, they have split now. And you know, in the year was it 2016? Salesforce got the ability to for a pick list to have you know the, the the label you see the text, but also then the value that gets stored in the database. Did you know that? Well, okay. So so going back to my example, what I did is I had a pick list table, and it was a reference, and everything was referenced by ID to that pick list table, and. But, you know, the decision would be, is this go into the general pick list table or is this become its own object or its own table? So you yeah. still have the same problem. Right. 
Anyway, I don't feel like, sorry, Leo, I don't feel like I answered your question very well, but I, I don't know if I have a better answer than that right now. Because I just, you know. I think this is a, this is, I think it's a good topic. I think it just, it has to come from a perspective of experience. It has to come from a perspective of, we we needed this type of logic to happen, and we did it with Process Builder, and it worked out great. Or we did it with Process Builder, and it it worked out horrible because when we tried to join it with here, we tried to do this, or it impacted this. I think these type of conversations about, you know, how best to organize your tools and where to put certain types of logic. I mean, it's going to come from experience. I mean, for you, it's it's if you're going to add code to the system, no Process Builder. But for me, it's it's like, eh, it's it's a little, it's not as black and white as that. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned ideology. I mean, I think my my ideology is if if your if your domain model is sufficiently complex that you're you're having to think about it like that, then yeah, I definitely I want to be I don't want to be doing a lot in declarative tools because it, that's just the tools aren't near as powerful. But then you have to maintain a healthy staff of developers to go in and maintain that and, and oh, modify it, or a healthy staff of admins. I mean, I, you gotta, you gotta, yes, you have to have smart people to work on these systems, whether they're developers, yeah, admins, you, whatever. <laughs> and I, I understand that, but but the other side of it is is Salesforce sold you a system and they said, hey, you don't need a coder, you can do, you can build all your logic in Salesforce. You can create a table, you can create I a field. You can, I can't you can, help it that your CMO went to Dreamforce and signed a contract <laughs> that he knew nothing about. That's, 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 again, just, that's above my pay grade. I'm sharing the, the flip side of the story of, the, you know, the system comes in and they they really expect you to leverage these declarative tools because A, you can modify them over time and they don't have to be unit tested. You can do it in production if you wanted to. I mean, there well, Salesforce now pretty is widely known for their reputation of uh, overselling and, and lots of smoke and mirrors and stuff. So it's, that's that's not a surprise to people anymore when you when you try to explain that to them. <laughs> All right, we'll leave it at that then. Um, so that was our last question. Do you want to do this review really quick, and then we'll get to your yeah. clips? Yeah. That way we can end on a good note. Well, let's first of all before we switch segments. Um, thanks for the questions, guys. Those were good. And John, how do people send us questions? Which they definitely should do. Questions and uh, and topics or tips or whatever. How do they do? That? Email us at info at goodday.sirpodcast dot com. All right, everybody, do that. Well, not everybody, but a lot it's, of you. It's fun. You get to write an email and send it. Yeah. Because everyone wants to send more emails. <laughs> okay. Review time. Let's make this quick because I don't uh, know people... This, this is, a, this is a, the navel-gazing portion of the show, which kind of bothers me, but... The navel-gazing? Yeah, it's, just, it's, 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 it's self-indulgent. It's like too much inward, you know, talking about ourselves. You know what I mean? I, people took the time to write it, and I, know, I want to read it, I know. and... I'm just saying, I'd want to, I want to do it and, and then move on. Yes, sir. I'm just saying. <laughs> Can turn it into like this 30-minute self-talk about ourselves. Well, because you do it. I just read it, and then you respond. Okay. Uh, this one's from Mike Wheels. Informative and funny cuts through the spin. John and Jeremy always provide, inf- provide informative, interesting, and honest coverage of the Salesforce ecosystem and their wider tech space. Enterprise tech is a pretty dry topic, but Good Day, Sir, makes it actually interesting and entertaining. Not only is the show great, but the wider community around it, such as the Slack channel, is excellent, full of very knowledgeable people. I would absolutely recommend the podcast uh, to anyone working with the Salesforce platform and even in the wider enterprise space. So thank you. Awesome. Yeah, these always make me feel so good. No, you're not allowed to. I not know. allowed to talk. Okay. You said we're going to move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's do these. Okay. Uh, so I, I saw a, a news article that talked about, you know, this company Pegasystems, which I, don't, I just have not followed that much, but you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're the ones that did the Pega does campaign. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that, you know, they're, they're a pretty significant thing. They're, they're out there making their own enterprise software. 
And so I dug into it and they they guess they've had they recently had their you know their version of their annual annual what their Dreamforce? Yeah, I guess whatever they're called. Their mini their mini me Dreamforce. And I got some clips. So let me as I'm stalling here trying to figure out how to play clips. Uh, let's see. Of how we together collectively build the community of the future. Because in, in organizing and executing this event, we think it's about you and it's about the content. One of the things that is absolutely critical, we believe, is to be profoundly different than the awesome tech events <laughs> that uh, frankly make it so hard for you to get permission to come here. Uh, the reason. <laughs> Any guesses as to what he's talking about here, <laughs> That's pretty good. I mean, because Dreamforce is such an expensive trip. You get one, that's it. If your company's going to pay for something, you get one. It's not like a local conference where you can... Well, I had never, I never, I had never thought of the fact that, the, that the, what Dreamforce is makes it difficult for people to get approval to go. But he's... Let me let, me let him continue because like he, he adds some color to that. All right. ...is that those awesome tech events usually have big speaking heads political leaders, luminaries, and remarkably, little tech. That's not what this is about. So is, is there this perception, and I guess in employers' minds, that Dreamforce is just a bunch of, you know, uh, Dreamboats and U2 concerts and uh, Tony Robbins walking on coals types of things, and it's not, it's not just, there's not enough substance there? Well, I, I took what he said two ways. The first way I took it was that he was saying that because Dreamforce is, is so expensive that if you go to Dreamforce, you're done. You can't go to any other conferences because it's so expensive. But the other way to take that is that he's saying you went to Dreamforce, but it was all fluff and it was a big party. You didn't learn anything. Yeah. So which which way is he going with that? I don't know. I think the fluff. I don't know. This is about the tech we have, the way our clients are applying that tech, and the way we all need to work together. You're not going to see any, you know, caricatured participants popping in, trying to give you the illusion of fun times. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And I, I also want you to know, and this may be disturbing... No fun times for you. For some of you, but uh, Einstein's not showing up. <laughs> Just not going to be here. I, I understand he had uh, sort of, well, he wanted to be. But I had this blind date with this long friend called Watson, and they went scampering off together. I, I don't understand actually how they can get any words in edgewise, since we know from their ads that both of them know everything there is to know. Because that's where we are in tech today. We're in a world where buyers should have the most ultimate cynicism about what they're seeing and what they're hearing, because rarely has there been a moment where there's so much BS in the marketplace. There is so much craziness about what we are doing, where we are going, and what effect it's going to have on us as people. So what do you think about that, John? Uh, this is, we're in a time where people should have you know, very high levels of cynicism. Well, I, I, I was going to say that, you know, I, Salesforce, 
I remember one of the earliest Dreamforces I went to, it did cover a lot of tech and it wasn't as big of a party as it is now. Sure, they had some speakers and sure they, were, they had their concerts. But I remember, you know, them showing off tech. I remember them getting Dell up there and showing off their servers and you know, the things you can buy to build your own cloud and those kind of things and how flat it felt. It fell on the audience, how the audience was just bored. They didn't want to see it. People go to Dreamforce and they want to be entertained. They want to see these speakers. They don't want to talk about tech and work. It's a vacation for them. They want they want it to be entertained. They want to go get their picture taken with Sassy and and Astro and and who's the new ones? I don't, I don't know. know. I the the millions of mascots. The they want to meet. They want to meet all the other people and, and the, the friends they've made in the community and, and talk to them. This is a social event. This is not an, a learning event. I mean, yes, John, you can learn. Ixnay on the. Yes, there's conferences, <laughs> but how much are you going to learn from an hour session? How much are you going to learn from? from these, you know, very well-polished, prepared things. <laughs> I, I, Salesforce is very much not an event for learning, in my opinion. There, see, I think I think that could, I don't know. It's First of all, the problem is it's a giant event. And yes, there is a ton of BS and a ton of smoke and mirrors and a ton of entertainment. And they're just, their goal is to dazzle you and impress you. Yes. And, and in some ways, I think it could be argued, take your focus off of what's actually being delivered and what the actual reality of the tech is involved. On the other hand, there's a ton of learning that can be done at Dreamforce if that's what you want to do. There are some pretty hardcore sessions. Um, Keynote-wise, I'd say the admin keynote's probably the one you'd want to go to if you actually want real stuff. I went to a few other keynotes, which Mm -hmm. were completely useless, including the main one. Um, See, for me, I don't think the sessions... the, The only reason the sessions end up being a learning experience for me is because afterwards I can get access to those people. I can get, I can talk to someone who, who gave us gave a you, talk on a topic, and I can ask some some very specific questions. Do you mean someone same, like uh, Shell Black at shellblack.com? It's, it's absolutely. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, even the product managers when they do their presentations, it's it's a very well polished, very specific thing, and it's only until I can open it up and ask questions that I can really start to get to know something about it. Um, but that that can happen void of all the fluff and, and everything else that goes on. Well, you can, you can have both. That's what I'm saying. I mean, yes, there's a lot of the entertainment stuff, but there's you can also learn a lot if you want to. You can take your you can do certifications there, right? I mean, there's Jeremy. They had a freaking arcade there one year, <laughs> an actual arcade with like yeah. Pac-Man and other arcade games right. there, where you could sit there and just play games all day. That all right? Well, on I, the company I, dime. I have more from this guy. We need to we need to get moving here. <laughs> What do you think so far? It's it's kind of funny. Am I the one? I should be the one uh, defending. We need to flip roles here. Well, you're going to get me in trouble. I feel like we're both bouncing around. You know, trying to trying to see all all sides of the story. (laughs) Okay, how do I get this to play? Come on, VLC. That was a delusion, not the first, but certainly. So I think I let me. If this is the right clip, I have to give a little bit of context. He just described how, in uh, I guess it was the Netherlands. Um, I think this was like hundreds of years ago when, like, I think it was the price of, you know, because they grow a lot of tulips there. Or is that just Amsterdam? I'm not sure. But anyway, you know, huge tulip production and always has been. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point that basically tulips were used, or man, I don't know if it's the tulips or like the bulbs that grow the tulips, um, yeah. where you almost use as currency. And the currency got like insanely inflated to, to the point that like a bulb was could be worth someone's, like basically their entire salary or something. Right. And then the whole system, like the bubble burst and the whole system collapsed. So he's talking about just the the. It was the inception or the beginning of the futures market. <laughs> Pretty much, it created the futures yeah, market. It kind of was. No, we, it did. It literally created the futures <laughs> okay, okay. market. Trading uh, tulip bulbs created the literally. Futures market. It you literally, mean literally, did. literally, literally. <laughs> okay. That's where it started. 
Anyway, so he starts talking about the, the, how delusional that whole thing was. Not the last. Because in all honesty, we're seeing a little bit of delusional behavior when it comes to the cloud. We're seeing people going from a world in which the cloud was not actually well understood to a world where everything's got to be on the cloud. Now, there are a couple of problems with this. Uh, one, the cloud is actually not a place, right? It's not like Boise. You can't go to the cloud. <laughs> it's, a, it's a way of thinking about your business. Expedia. It's a way of organizing <laughs> what you do in such a fashion that it should make you more agile, should make you responsive, should make it possible for you to deal with variability in workload and bring certain things together. But as is so often the situation, the cloud has very much started to emerge as a collection of balkanized, honestly disassociated cloudlets. And cloudless. for a customer to think that by nestling into the cloud, everything they do and see and touch will be automatic and inexpensive and not require integration. Uh, so I wonder here if he just to talk, pause for a second because he's got four more minutes. Um, I wonder if he's talking about is he taking make, taking a jab at Salesforce? Is different when he talks about the cloudlets, like they're different clouds and how they're kind of not integrated and it's not just uh, all you know peaches and cream, easy and whatever. I think that's what he's trying to allude to. Although he's he's a little late to the game because they're not clouds anymore; they're all Einsteins now. <laughs> they're all Einsteins. Yeah, they're all Einsteins <laughs> okay. now. I'm not sure. I they cloned Einstein. Oh, now. So now there's like sales Einstein and service Einstein. So there's, it's all, Einstein, all the things. Yes, of course. There's not a lot of evidence to support that those tulips will grow. Yet, there are no shortage of people and participants who are deeply vested in promoting this as much and as aggressively as possible. Making the cloud sound like a thing that you can just grab. Well, in reality, We've seen this sort of thing before. And, and we've seen situations where you can kind of tell that a good idea, and don't get me wrong, the cloud is a terrific idea done right, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, but that a good idea gets hooked up in too much hype. And then all of a sudden, people realize that the very foundations of those hypesters are Hypesters. built on sand. You know, an interesting example that some of you may still be living with comes from a guy named Tom Siebel. Right, Siebel, Siebel Systems. You know, they were the dominant player in the late 1990s. And um, in 2002, there was a cover of Forbes magazine that was written that gave me a little clue that perhaps this uh, panacea this panacea of customer relationship management, this ability to get views of your clients that was seamless, and, and to have great flexibility that this panacea maybe had hit a tipping point. And, and it was actually a quote from that Forbes article. He, total, total misuse of tipping point, by the way. He was talking about how his software gave him the power to see around corners. See around corners. Uh, he didn't see around the corner two years later when the company died, 
By the way, the only reason I'm playing this long of a clip is because I think we have a lot of old school CRM nerds who will find the story interesting. <laughs> and also, it, it gets funnier here in a second. And, and, you know, frankly, talking to lots of customers who are trying to rip the last vestiges of these Siebel systems out, a lot of that crap got really baked into those corners. I don't think they were corners he was talking about, but they're the corners <laughs> of your business. And, and decisions like that built on a wave of hype, unrealized expectations, and oversimplification did an enormous disservice to service in this country. Well, that's not the last time I could put a dozen quotes like this up here. But just as we were preparing for this, uh, this morning, I came across a really, really juicy one. And, uh, Can you guess who it's from, John? <laughs> this, is, this is an ass John. Uh, who could this possibly be about? Uh, Larry Ellison. <laughs> it, it was one in which Mark Benioff of Salesforce oh, I got it wrong. <laughs> was describing how he interacted with his management team. And by the way, this is not one soundbout out of context. He goes on and on about how Einstein, his little caricature, is a full-fledged participant in his management team. <laughs> And every time he decides... It really does make him seem a, li seem a little bit like a crazy person, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> He's referring to that uh, to the call. Th they even keep a chair, John, and it's a chair. Well, that's what he said on the call. I, I, <laughs> I know. I, but was that a joke or is that no, a reality? I think it's real. ...that things need a new insight. He goes to Einstein and Einstein tells him what he needs to do. I don't know. I see bullshit all over that page. <laughs> I see bullshit. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't think that's a speech Benioff would give. I can't imagine Benioff getting on stage and saying, scary I see bullshit, no. ...about this page is to know a little bit about the DNA of the participants. Because it tells you a lot as a buyer what life is going to look like after the sale is over. And the interesting thing about their DNA is it's painted Oracle red. Not just Oracle did they red. both come from Oracle and have Oracle steep deep in their cultures, despite efforts to disclaim it, yeah. but actually much as Oracle has become, they became investment banks. They began buying things and painting them and gluing them together and making them sound good, which frankly, they do really well. Anyway, I got I got to check out that whole speech. I mean, that's it's it's um it's pretty interesting, and I I I'm, I find his delivery pretty interesting. I mean, it's it it's a it's a it's a nice story. It actually honestly makes me more curious about Pega itself, like the, the its actual system and what their technology is like. Whether or not I can do anything, but yeah. Well, hey, Pega can right. <laughs> uh, let's see. I think I have another a short one. Hang on. Oh, yeah. This, this, I wanted to do this one just, just to show that this guy actually, even though he's calling out pe other people on their BS, he's got a little bit of BS of his own. Uh, just, just, just to oh, I like hey, it. fair and balanced yeah, here exactly. on the Good I like Taste podcast. I like that. Now let's talk about choice. Because I think one of the most critical elements of any company that is contemplating the application of technology is to ensure that they have the right array of choices. Now, making a technology decision inevitably pushes you in a certain direction, a direction from which you're not going to be able to just easily snap. Roach Motel. Your fingers and disappear from. 
But some lock you in and some actually give you a set of choices. You know, let's use, for example, the cloud. So we love the cloud. And our view of the cloud is our customers should be able to run on PegaCloud, a fully managed service. They don't have any database administrators. We keep everything running beautifully. They don't have to worry about tuning or anything else. Or they should be able to run it themselves on, say, Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure. Or they should be able to create a private cloud and bring it in-house and run it on Pivotal. Or go to a partner like um, Athos or Accenture and have that partner run it for them. And importantly, go back and forth between them. The reason we can do this and are uniquely qualified to do this is we've got software that writes software. So if somebody wants to pick up <laughs> and move from a PegaCloud implementation uh. to bring it into Pivotal in-house or make any of these other choices, we actually create software optimized for those platforms. And you know what, if another platform emerges, we can just give that capability to our clients. And by giving that capability to our clients, we future-proof them. We give them possibilities that aren't even known yet. And this is central to the premise of our software. That you know, when HTML6 and CSS4 comes, you'll be able to take advantage of the state of the art of those capabilities because we will simply generate different code. Yeah, BS. That's what bullshit. it's about to offer true choice to clients. Not A versus B, but A versus what's next. So this yeah, that's an illusion of choice. To it's, what a, we it's a do. fallacy. Uh, yeah, and, and he had just, again, uh, another reason why you should watch this whole video. <clears throat> he had just finished talking about how this idea that we're going to have our software writing our software is kind of BS. It, it's, so, it's so far out, it's, it's BS. Yeah. And then he says that their software writes software. It's going to automatically generate the, whatever code needed. It's like, no, it's not. No. No, it's not. <laughs> no. Uh, pot, um, meat, kettle. Now, I have... <laughs> uh, I have from another speaker, same, same conference, but I, I could not resist uh, including this. And you'll see why. All these capabilities are available to our marketing solution, our yeah, sales solution, I need, I our customer forward. service and operations. And we love talking. We love talking about how the Pegaflot that are at the center of this. And they are demanding amazing experiences. So this is Pega <clears throat> and some other guy who, who works there. He's going to bring a guest on to talk about how they're using their technology. And this just really surprised me. They're expecting experiences that are highly personalized directly to them as individuals. And here at Pega, we are very lucky to work with some amazing organizations, including the Coca-Cola company that is actually driving great personalized engagement with their customers. What? I, I thought Coke was a big Salesforce shop, John. How is this possible? <laughs> my my worlds are colliding. My all of my everything I know is is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> they can use both. I guess so. And well, to I, tell us a little, you bit. won't. You wait till you hear about what they're using it with at Coke. More about that. I'd like to invite Kushala Silva, the Group Director of Digital Innovation at Coke. Better not break out an iPad. Let's digitize it about. Okay. It's the digital. 
So it's a about digitizing, digitizing our system. So you guys sell soft drinks around the world. Yeah. So in this case, what does digital actually mean for Coca-Cola? Yeah. So Karin, think about it. Mm -hmm. It is about connecting with our consumers. Connecting with our consumers at the right time and giving the right message. That's what the digitization for us. Mm -hmm. Now imagine, we have 20 million coolers across the globe. <laughs> 20 million coolers. Imagine a cooler system so powerful and so intelligent that it knows you mm -hmm. and it connects you at the right moment. Now, John, we have a problem here. It's, it's only missing the iPad, man. The, someone missing. crossed the stream somewhere. The, the universes are colliding. Something, something has gone very, <laughs> very wrong. This is like a Schrodinger thing or something. I don't understand this. How is it that they're using Pega to, intel to intelligently manage and run their, their, the coolers that hold Coke? I have no idea. This is, that's this Einstein's is, job, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, come on. This is mind blown twice in one episode, John. Hey, what other podcast are you going to get that on, huh? huh? I, I just love, I, I love how this progressed because we got this whole hype is BS, the cloud is not real thing, and now we're getting all this clouds, you know, by our cloud and and the illusion of choice and and all the fluff and and BS that came with that, and now we're getting a very similar tech demo. He said Einstein wasn't on Pega. Oh, no, and, and they did. I mean, I'm skipping all of it, but they did this big demo where. Um, I'm actually, might be, I don't know. I've got one little part I'd love to play, but they, you know, they have this mobile app, and then as soon as you walk near, you know, near a uh, one of these coolers, mm -hmm. it's it pops up and says, "Hey, you know, we've got your favorite drink," and 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 it knows what your it 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 guesses what your favorite drink is based on uh, artificial intelligence. Actually, I get a different offer. My app realizes that I really like. Um, a Jack and Coke do the Shell Crow concert. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it offered me a um, offered me a Coca Cola straight, and here we go. Yep. So now I'm going to purchase this, and let's see. I'm going to get me dead oh. air. What is he doing? He's, he's right. actually used, it's, um, he ordered on his phone and the, the, the vending machine, you know, spit Very out cool. whatever well, that's, that's, he ordered. That's so much better than having to uh, worry about cash or change. No, it's not. You put that in two quarters cool. in and the machine and press a button and, and you I get a code. No, he had to whip out his phone, a, um, yeah. get a recommendation, that's right. probably that's press his phone against for NFC. The, yeah, the and it didn't work the first three yeah. times because so. he didn't have his thumb in the right place. Yeah. So our package has actually evolved through the time. So the earliest bottle is a glass bottle. Mm -hmm. Then we created this contour bottle. It's so unique that with your eyes closed, you can still know what's inside. <laughs> then we started creating the plastic <laughs> bottles, and also we have <laughs> aluminum bottles. But I really think, Kareem, the future is a bottle that interacts with you. Mm -hmm. A bottle what? that actually sings happy birthday on oh, your birthday. What? <laughs> OK. Uh, I, I, I want to go back in time. I don't want to live in this futuristic world where bottles sing to me. So this this is we're boarding on on Salesforce levels of BS here. Yes, this is the, insane. Do we need our bottles to interact with us? No, no. It's maybe, a, maybe the Coke can can connect with the man baby toothbrush, and they can together they can nag you about how much sugar you're ingesting. Yeah, well, and who's if if listen if we have bottles that interact with us, who's going to be paying for that crappy technology? I thought we, we are. I thought we were worried about people in, in third world countries with you know they don't have food and water, and here we are talking about building freaking bottles that talk to us. Yeah. Jeez. 
Oh, well, John, I've got a whole a whole segment that um and it's it's it was going to be a new uh, segment which is called uh we read stuff from the Salesforce Reddit, but I don't think we're going to be able to get to it. I'll just have to hold it. There's some good gems in there. Ah, cuz we're, we're running out of time. Yeah, I mean, we're you know, we're like an hour and hour and a half in. Something like that. Well, you know, I don't mind this running long even though I know you you're you're pressed for time because uh we need to talk about next week cuz I won't be here. So, yeah, we probably won't have an episode next yeah, week. We probably won't. So, Play this one in at half speed and make it make it last. And, uh, yeah, don't don't rush it. <laughs> ration it. Yeah. And if 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 you if you're kind of really behind on episodes, now's a good time to catch up. You know, because I'll I'll be out this week, and then you'll be at Trailhead and on vacation. Uh, yeah. so so this uh, June might it's, be spotty for releases. Be. Yeah, it might be. Um, I did. I have a just a Salesforce question I wanted to ask you, so we can do a couple more small things here. <clears throat> How do you? Uh, let's say you have some Apex code that that is a scheduled job. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have some code that then instantiates that and, cre- and creates, you know, schedules that job, right? Makes it a scheduled job. Right. How do you, but in the code that, that actually instantiates the scheduled job and schedules it, how does it first check to see whether that job is already scheduled? Uh, usually don't. Usually it's a, a run a manual command to create the schedule. And so I look and check to see if it's there already. Okay. So I've got the situation where a user needs to be able to, you know, push a button and schedule the job. But I want to have the thing check first to see if the job is already scheduled or not. Well, the job should exist, I think, with the class name. It, okay, so this is this is the thing. And maybe maybe that I'm missing something here. But you can query, what is it, the cron trigger table or something like so, that? Yeah. And you can get a list of jobs. And it's got a job ID and some other crap. But it doesn't have, as far as I can tell, the class name. And also, you know, you can give jobs names, right? I think there's a job detail, though, isn't there? I don't know. I, I, I don't, yeah, and you can't give it a job name. Yeah, but you can't. It seems that you cannot query that name. Oh. It's not available when you query. And I don't. I don't understand this. I don't know why. So I don't know. I thought maybe someone might have a solution, or maybe I'm doing something wrong. But what I'm doing is like I just create the job, and if it, um, and fortunately, you do get it. Actually, a fairly user friendly error message. It basically just says the job, blah blah blah, has already been is already scheduled. Hmm. So, well, kudos for building tooling. Not too many people do that. No. <laughs> like me, who just yeah. goes into the the. Yeah, you, the developer console you, you runs give, an anonymous give, command. Exactly. Or you give your customers this. Okay, go on to developer console, click I, on this tab, go on to execute anonymous, paste I, in this code. Don't I, even add, don't even ask me what it means. Yep. Just do it. I've Just do it, it and shut up. <laughs> I've done it. I've asked them to do that. Yeah. Well, because uh, building a tool costs money. It does. It all costs money. All right, John. Well, hypesters. I like that. Hypesters? Yeah. Is that what we're calling them, hypesters? No, that's just what that that guy said. He was he was the uh, the tech the tech luminaries of the world, John. They're hypesters, the luminaries. Yep. All right. Anything else? Um, hypesters. So yeah. So we, we you know we may not record next week. We don't really know, but s- sorry if we don't. Yeah. You know, if we're ready to close out, there's a few shout outs I want to give. I want to you know want to thank Shell Black once again for for hosting our good day, sir. Uh, Happy hour. The check cleared. Yeah, good. The check, check cleared we, the we, bank. We got the so, check and it woo. cleared. So yeah, we, it was officially we're, sponsored. We're sweating that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was it was very generous of him and and uh, really appreciate it and all the support and everything and and uh, hopefully everyone had a good time. I couldn't talk, so I apologize. But um, yeah, hopefully hopefully you guys had a good time talking to Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, and <clears throat> I think we're going to try to you know do some kind of meetup at uh, Trailhead X. Yeah, we tra- have a Trailhead DX Trailhead Trailhead X. I don't know. Just Trailhead X. So, and I guess it'll probably, how many days is that? I have to look at that. I don't know. That's only two or three days. Is it three days? Maybe. I feel like it's like Tuesday through Thursday, but, or maybe it's Wednesday and Thursday. Maybe. 
So I was thinking actually maybe Tuesday night because I think everyone will have to fly in Tuesday. I would imagine if you're going to get mm-hmm. there. So maybe Tuesday night. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We have well, a channel. Now we have a channel. Now, so hey, what about the Slack, John? How do people get in the Slack if they don't know about Slack or our Slack? Oh, well, you caught me in the middle of something. <laughs> uh, go to gooddayserpodcast.com and uh, in the menu, you'll see a menu option for community. Yep. And just type in your email address and uh, be patient with me since I do have to manually add everyone to the, to the Slack. Uh, I get I get to it. You know, you you're, you are a software developer. You think you would, you know, maybe automate. Well, no, because I can't blindly do it. I have to. I have to Google search because I don't. There's no spam filtering mm. system, so yeah. I have to go and look. So, some if 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 you've registered and it didn't go through, maybe DM me and ask me because sometimes if I try to find your email address, I, I usually like try to do like your name or your email address with Salesforce or tech or something. Just try to find that you're a real person because I have no other way of filtering. Why don't you add a, the cap, the capture thing? Because our stupid website doesn't do oh. that. <laughs> Damn it, I'd have to pay for a real form system <clears throat> to do that. Crappy technology. So I'm just, I'm just trying to you limit... You should have built it on Visual Force. John. I'm trying to limit the amount of spam that comes <laughs> comes in. Yeah. So. Uh, All right. A second shout out, uh, Surfforce. We are a sponsor and that that's happening and you can go online to register. So you can go to Surfforce, S-U-R-F-F-O- rce.co not com.co because they're weird foreigners yeah <laughs> uh, but you can go there you can register I wish I was going looks like they picked another beautiful spot in Bundaran, Ireland and it's going to be September 22nd to the 23rd they have all kinds of options I believe looks like there's options even that include uh, accommodations so so what do they do do they like surf half the day and then talk about Salesforce for half the day or how does this work I think they surf or they talk about Salesforce one day and the next day they surf okay so, and I, I believe that it's instructor-led surfing. So, I think if you already know how to surf, great. And if you don't, you can learn. I can believe learn. that's awesome. That would be cool. I would like to do that. I would. Can we write that? I think we could even expense that, could we? Is that IRS uh, safe? <laughs> IRS safe. <laughs> IRS safe. IRS asking. approved. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I, yeah, it's a conference. I got to imagine it's it's business travel. Yeah. Talk business. Hand some business cards around. Yeah. All right, John. Any final tips? Any uh, any good. Uh, I don't know Costco tips or uh, any any Amazon tips. Any uh, anything? I have no tips. Okay, have no- <laughs> I have no tips. Uh, we did have the Apple conference, which we didn't get to. Uh, I'll I'll name my favorite highlights. One of them being Amazon Prime coming to Apple TV because I have no other way of looking at Prime except that way. Uh, now, but- was that okay? Was that did they did it not have Amazon Prime until now because of Amazon or because of Apple? I want to believe it's because of Amazon because they wanted to they wanted it on their Fire Stick, right? But I think the Fire Stick is not doing as great, and it would be nice to watch my Prime on my Apple TV because that's already set up. I don't have to set up another thing. Well, I'm Am- out of HDMI ports. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, gosh, John. What was I going to say? Uh, yeah, the thing is, you know, Amazon has gotten so invested in content. I mean, billions and billions and billions of dollars that I think it's becoming important. It's more important to them to distribute their content than it is to sell Fire Sticks. Yeah, right? exactly. Okay. Yeah. The content's worth more than the, the hardware, right. definitely. Um, and hey, if you can get your content on your competitor's platform, even better, right? I would think. Yeah. So. Uh, the next one that, that uh, of course, the big one is the HomePod, uh, right. which I said looked like a ball of yarn. My wife said it looked like the, the string part of a kite. You know how like the, a, the string gets wrapped. A spool of thread. Right? Yeah, a spool yeah. of thread, yeah. Uh, but it, it the tech looks exciting. The I mean, the fact that it's got a... Massive processor, and it seems exciting. <laughs> An A8 processor <laughs> <laughs> for a speaker. I mean, that's I massive. Well, that's a, more than a speaker. Well, because you know, they. I think people still think of it as a music thing, and I think that is their 
that's how they wanted to differentiate their product versus the other ones. Yeah. Is that, hey, this is a, this is like better than Sonos or Bose or whatever. This right. is something that's beyond all that. And it's really for like the best sounding music or whatever. And I think it also and, hedges them against comparisons with Alexa or Echo. There she is. <laughs> Turned her on, John. <laughs> well, it takes a say in her name, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> if only it were that easy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to get us in trouble. I know. Uh, but yeah, I think I think part of that was just to kind of you know avoid that type of comparison because as soon as someone does, a fanboy can easily say it's not one of those; it's a speaker, right? <laughs> it's better than that. But they didn't. I mean, they, I don't really even think they mentioned until the second half of that presentation that oh, and by the way, it's going to be a personal assistant as well. Yeah, it's going to have Siri on it. Like, right. eh. yeah. Oh, and also it might have Siri. Yeah, and also you can do like these eight million things besides yeah. listen to music. Uh, the other one is the the car phone mode on on the new OS, which I think is good because I'm sick of seeing people on their damn phones while they're driving. Yeah, that's the problem. People aren't going to use it because they don't want to be not dis- uh, to not be disturbed. But it, it's awareness. It's at least awareness. They have the tools, so now I can really be mad at them and be like, "Turn your damn phone off." There's a feature for it. Stop. Is, is this one of those? You don't need to be on your. Is phone. this like a virtue signaling thing where they can, Apple cannot take credit for being just aware of the problem and? Doing something about it. I think it, it's, it's a certain amount of liability li- uh, limiting Could because be. you know they have a feature to to, to well, limit that on CarPlay. It yeah, it, it doesn't let you do anything like in, if text. It, you know, it only it will read you a text that comes in, and you can you know speak back a text, but it does not let you doesn't will not show them on the screen. Yeah, really makes you. It wants to keep your eyes off of the screen. Well, I mean, good. you got your brand new car, and someone hits you because they were on the phone. That's true. That was super should, annoying. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And, and the the biggest the biggest thing I think is the iMac Pro, which is a, a very a very fat iMac. Now I have not read much of the follow up coverage of that. Are people pretty excited about that? Is this is this surprisingly yes? I, I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, you know what? When I first heard of it, they they kind of figured something like that was coming, and then the more they got into the specs, or at least the more they just sat it with it sitting in their brain, they're like, if money wasn't not wasn't an issue, yeah, I'd buy one. Well, and yeah, it's it's definitely it's. It's too rich for my blood. I don't. I just don't have a legitimate enough use for it to spend that much money. Uh, but if I did, I, it sounds like I mean they just kind of hit all the things. I mean, yeah. I even think, I think with that the the trash can Mac Pro, mm-hmm. they got people thinking in the mode of well, if you're gonna, you're no longer gonna throw a bunch of drives into Mac Pros anymore. You're gonna have to connect them externally. And with things like Thunderbolt three and whatever it makes, I mean, you, this is not very feasible. Yeah, and I think. Because they've already got us thinking in that mode, but you know, pros are willing to accept this sealed up all in one as a as a legitimate pro device because the extension model is is external via Thunderbolt three. Yeah, and even in terms of upgradability, I mean, I know that's a thing, but I mean, how many professionals who are primarily graphic artists really want to rip apart their machine and add a new card? I mean that's not that's not their time. That's no, not but worth their time. There have been, but it is an yeah. option. I mean, in terms right. of economics, yeah. how and and keeping forward. But at the same time, if you're successful enough to be able to afford a four thousand dollar computer, every you know two or two three years, it's not a big deal to just buy another one. That's true. And and you know the problem with these graphics cards is you know you can you can buy the top of the line graphics card right now. It might cost you oh, yeah. what, how much are those five six hundred bucks? Oh, top of the line, they get more, more than, than that. that. Okay, yeah. But the problem is, is a year from now that it's <laughs> there's one that's out that's twice the speed. Yeah, and if you're one of these professionals that you literally can never be fast enough, you're swapping in a new card in your machine every year. 
Well, you can't do that with this machine, right? Yeah, but even that's kind of not a thing because the software you use has to support it as well. I mean, that's you, true. it's not like you can just toss in a card no. and, and everything just starts working and all everything's faster. But if the card it's supports that, like you know DirectX or whatever it is, isn't that isn't that yeah or whatever the API? And, and is, those yeah. those are those APIs are getting better and more efficient. So even even older cards are able to run pretty well. And even now now that's now the big thing is you know multiple cards. So it's not just one card anymore; it's multiples. So it's even doubly more expensive to replace everything. So I think for a lot of professionals, the iMac Pro will, is, will be a really good device. But for, I think there's just there's still that subset that yeah. you know not having because the video. Correct me if I'm wrong. The video card is not upgradable. No, nothing. You can't upgrade the memory. Nothing. It's yeah. it's sealed in. So you, you configure it the way you want it because that's the way it's going to be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I, don't know, I I I like the idea of it. If if I if I had the money to spend on it, I, I probably would. Oh yeah, if I had the money, I would do sure. <laughs> Let's see, it's easy. Uh, and, and to that note, if you want to sponsor, the, okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got that uh, Patreon set up yet, John? Oh no, Patreon. We need to buy a beer. Patreon. Buy us a beer, right? <laughs> Patreon. We do. We need that. We need to buy us some beer. Patreon fund because we don't have any beer today. We don't. This was a. You know what? The sober shows are different shows. Altogether, they feel. I wonder if people notice that that the sober shows they just come across differently. I think they they do. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even have a whiskey bottle here. I know we're, we're I'm missing my sound effect. Is, that was the only sound effect I could make. Yeah, and I'm missing it. Right. Anyway. <laughs> all right, John. Is that it? That's all I have. All right, me too. Uh, did you want to do any uh, follow up with socials? We we asked everyone to do reviews. Yeah, socials. I, mean, I, think, I think people know the drill. Share us. You know. Review, we love the reviews. Those are great. I think they help people find us, um, find the community. What else? You know, what uh, Overcast and what Pocket Cast? What if they, a lot of those things let you recommend or whatever? Or at least like shows. Yep. Um, or if sure they don't offer a review, you can always just, you know, email us a review or, or whatever. You know, whatever been, feedback you have. You know, I, I've seen a lot of people sharing us on Twitter. That's, that's you know, with a, like a nice um, little message or whatever those. I think that's great. It all helps. It all helps. So we appreciate that and keep doing it. Yeah. Oh, and uh, for you uh, Gene Wilder fans, uh, Young Frankenstein is out on Netflix now. So it previously wasn't available digitally because I couldn't find it, but then it showed up. I'm really hopeful for Haunted Honeymoon. I, I love that one. You better watch it now because things b- become available and then when that deal expires, <laughs> you know, it's gone. I know. I know. Uh-huh. And to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. The cloud is actually not a place. The cloud is kind of BS. Beware of the false cloud.